I've always felt that something flying under a falcon is kind of dissing them. It's no respect. I'm not, it's like, you're nothing. I'm not afraid of you. And she had other ideas. And, and my back was turned to her as I was moving towards the duck and somebody, I heard somebody say, she's stooping. And so I turn and look and here she is, full fold. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, brought to you in part by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on Marshall products, including their awesome GPS system, head to marshallradio.com. And we're also partially brought to you in part by the Falconry Fund, and the Falconry Fund is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and protecting the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. For more information on the Falconry Fund, head to falconryfund.org where you can find out more about their current projects and how to donate. And this episode is the second episode in a series of podcasts that is brought to you specially by the New Mexico Falconers Association. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to the last episode that was published yet with Paul Domsky, you can go back and listen to the intro of that and find out some more information. But long and short of it is the New Mexico Falconers Association decided to have me down and do a series of episodes with them about the history of Falconry New Mexico, how their club got started, and and just kind of have some discussions with some of the older Falconers in the state and the guys that were uh, there in the beginning. So last episode was really cool with Paul, and, and this uh, episode with Matt Mitchell is also very informative, I think, and kind of helps cover some of the early days of New Mexico Falconry. So as stated before in the last episode, if you're interested in having a series of episodes done for your state's club, feel free to shoot us an email and we'd love to work something out with you. But anyway, without further ado, here's Matt Mitchell. All right. And three, two, one, and we are rolling. And I am here with Matt Mitchell in his really cool house. I don't know how he lucked into it, but it's yeah, I, how did you luck into this, by the way? You kind of were talking about it a little bit. Just tell me a little bit more how you lucked into a house that you could easily convert into like a billion chamber mew and, uh, and everything else and, and have it be so conveniently nice. Like, how right. did you fall into this? Well, this is um, a small community. We all live on Boscacito Road, and everybody gets to know everybody for better or worse. And um, this gentleman that um, lived in this house was, uh, did lapidary, which is what I do for a living as well. And so we had an, a connection there and stayed in touch. Uh, but he had to move back for family reasons to California and uh, put this house on the market. And I came over like a good neighbor to help him pack up and move and uh, saw what he had done with the place. And... Uh, I brought my wife out to look at it, and it was she wanted it badly, but I had to make sure that the muse and all the falcon facilities and breeding facilities would all work, and I did not want to build a whole new facility from the ground up. So um, it came down to converting a 24 by 30 workshop, um, all open space, but lots of windows, 
um, building 12 chambers in that space, and it was doable. And so despite every reason to try and talk myself out of it, it, <laughs> it happened. And so here we are, and no regrets. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm glad it worked out for you. And I mean, just seeing your, your facilities that you've converted over there, you've got a, a good thing going. So I'm, I'm happy for you that that worked out. I wish that, uh, <laughs> said this a million times and I'll probably get tired of saying it. I know I'm tired of saying, cause I wish it would just happen, but you know, I, I always tell friends and new people that I meet, I, I would love to live out here. I would move out here in a heartbeat if I could. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my wife is, she's stubborn and that, I don't think that'll ever happen. So right. all the power to you. Well, but, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, how long have you been in New Mexico and how long have you been involved with the club? Um, well, I have been involved with uh, the club for as long as there was a club, but actually Falconry came to New Mexico before there was any organized um, group at all. Um, uh, but I'll, I'm a native New Mexican, and so I've been here all my life. Um, my interest has always been in wildlife, uh, and as a youngster, probably more reptiles, um, snakes, lizards, frogs. I just couldn't get enough of that stuff. <laughs> and, of course, it was the days when parents would kick you out and say, get outside and go do something, you know. And so mm -hmm. you went out and to amuse yourself, you know, no video games or anything like that. And we had television, but they wouldn't let you watch that for, for good reasons. So um, anyway, I, always interested in wildlife. And um, as a matter of fact, I, had, uh, I took biology um, at University of New Mexico. And the, the big plan was to go to um, uh, University of Arizona and get a master's in wildlife management. That's how deep my interests were. Um, but um, as the old saying goes, um, life is what happens when you're making other plans. And so um, I started um, in the turquoise jewelry business to pay for college. And um, uh, it, it, as it turned out, the opportunities with the jewelry business were better than, um, you know, the opportunities uh, uh, that, that my field was offering. And so all these years later, I'm still making the jewelry. But it's been fabulous for the falconry uh, angle because when you work your own hours, you can take off to fly birds when you need to and not sure, punch yeah. somebody else's time clock. Um, so it's worked out in a lot of different ways. Uh, I, I may not be rich, as rich as I would be, but that's fine with me. Um, flying the birds, is, how much is that worth, you have to ask yourself. So Definitely. Well, I mean, how, did, how does that transition even happen? I'm, that, this, this is one of the reasons why I like doing this so much, because I love finding out the different little segues that people's lives take in the process. I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I've kind of been, I mean, I, I got into respiratory therapy the same way, you know, just, uh, <laughs> it just kind of happened. But I mean, how did you stumble onto that whole career path then exactly? Like, how, how, did, how exactly did that happen? You, um, the turquoise jewelry yeah, yeah, path? Yeah. Yes. Um, in the day, back in oh, the late 60s and early 70s, um, it, turquoise jewelry was booming. The movie stars were wearing it. Everybody had to have their piece of turquoise jewelry. It was just a fad at the time. Uh, now it's more established, and um, you know it's still popular, but it's not a fad now. It's an established industry. 
back then it was definitely a fad. And anybody um, around the Southwest, uh, it was a job opportunity to work in somebody's shop and learn the trade and uh, a lot of different things. Silversmithing, cutting stones for rings, or um, my specialty was carving animal fetishes, the, the little animal carvings. And um, so that, that was, it was just so um, popular then that it was easy to do, to get into that field. And uh, as far as paying for college, I feel for the kids who are trying to pay for school now, it's ridiculous. The, the, yeah. But back then, you could actually work and pay for your own college, which I did. And that was the whole plan. It was just, it was just temporary. But temporary, you know, has a way of becoming longer term. And yeah. it certainly did with me. I get it. I get it. Like I said, respiratory therapy was going to be the... The, the backup plan for when, you know, the music stuff was taking downturns and this kind of stuff, you know, the recording stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I feel you on that. But no, I mean, it's, it's great, though, that you were able to kind of get into an unplanned thing that turned out to be a blessing in, in disguise for your falconry in particular, because everyone that knows or everyone that has a either a nine to five or some kind of you know, 36 to 40 hour a week type of job knows how difficult it is to, you know, kind of map your falconry practice career, whatever you want to call it around your job. And usually everybody's got to eat too, but you know, I'm, it's, it's good that that worked out for you that way. And I mean, it, what, what time period though, did you start? I mean, what age were you when, when you got into falconry and uh, how did all of this in New Mexico kind of get started. I mean, when about what was the time frame? With understood. That? Well, uh, th there were falconers around um, before I even knew about falconry. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was not on the first wave of falconers. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are some other falconers out there who who were doing it, but they were. Um, in the shadows, um, not because of Ill illegality or anything, it's just the nature of <laughs> falconers, and especially then, because there weren't a lot of regulations, and uh, with so few people in falconry, uh, it would take very little to make it illegal. If somebody came um, uh, to not like falconry and got in front of um, legislators, they could very easily make it illegal. And so for good reason, a lot of the falconers before me were careful um, to a fault. But I got into it um, just, there, there was a few people around who weren't great, great um, falconers, but uh, weren't experienced falconers, but they, they had read books and were into the sport. And so there was a small group of people and two blocks from where I lived in Albuquerque when I was 14 years old, um, two blocks down, a guy had a bird, a Swainson hawk, and he would put it out on a, on a perch in his yard. And I would go down there with um, my best friend that I grew up with, who was Tim Reardon, who's also in falconry to this day, living in Tucson. Um, and we would go down there and look at that bird, and it was just awesome. For somebody who had been 
into reptiles and all as a kid and catching all kinds of snakes and <clears throat> lizards. Uh, there's a reptilian aspect to raptors with the scales and just the way they look at you. They look right through you. It's, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to put in words, but it's definitely a reptilian angle. Um, of course, some say that dinosaurs never died out. They just changed into the birds. And so here they are. <laughs> but um, anyway, it was it was. Um, awesome. And I was struck, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, uh, addicted even before I knew it. And so, um, the, the first bird we got, my friend that I mentioned, Tim Reardon had a bass guitar and he, uh, would loan it out to people because they needed an instrument or something and, and they would borrow his bass guitar. And this one guy, uh, borrowed his bass guitar and he said, you know, what do you want? Um, and he said, I can make you a, a Swedish goshawk trap. He had plans for, for a Swedish goshawk trap, which is, you know, it's a great big boxy thing with a lid that closes down. And it's, it's like, well, we had no idea, but we said, great, we can go trap stuff because we had been, you know, out in the wildlife and all we'd go make traps to catch birds, noose traps and all sorts of stuff with, you know, you'd bend over branches and do all these cool traps um, that would catch stuff. And so we were into trapping birds. And so this sounded like a great idea. Let's get a Swedish goshawk trap. Maybe a Swedish goshawk will come along. But, but, <laughs> but, but actually, we, we thought we'd try and trap a kestrel. And um, uh, who would have thought that we could even catch a kestrel in a Swedish goshawk trap, this big old clanky thing. But we set it light enough and down came a kestrel. It was maybe the most exciting moment of my life to see a kestrel come diving off a pole and right into that trap and that lid shuts and you have this wild thing right there, you know, in your grasp, just amazing. And um, from there, we never looked back. Um, we, uh, we actually had burrowing owls for a while. We, there were um, burrowing owls were a lot more common um, when I was a kid than they are now, uh, and so we would we made these um, similar to a have a heart. They're copies of a have a heart trap, but we made them ourselves, and we tie them open and put them over the burrowing owl hole and so the babies and the parents would get used to it and then they come in and out you know just like it was the entrance of the hole and then after they were acclimated you'd set it and the first one through you'd catch and so you'd catch a, a baby burrowing owl and so we had these is burrowing owls and um, th the amazing thing was how good their hearing is they would you we would take them to the park where we would hang out in the summers as kids and we'd have these burrowing owls and uh, they would hear a, a cicada or a katydid up in the trees and you and and the, you, they with their ears they would he hear it and you could see them focus their hearing on where it was and they'd fly right up and catch it and take it down and it was just just a blast of course i have to admit um that uh, a burrowing owl is uh, a chick magnet, and so any girls around the neighborhood would have to come check them out, and so that was a, a, a nice uh, aspect to it. But um, then from that, we moved on to um, uh, 
uh, Swainson hawks. And we each had um, an eye of Swainson hawk. And of course, we took them too young. They were imprints, um, but we learned the ropes on the bigger birds. Um, my buddy lived uh, two blocks away and my bird screaming, you could hear his bird screaming two blocks away. And it's a miracle that the neighbors didn't turn us in or <laughs> complain or something, because those were noisy, noisy birds. But um, uh, we, we got them flying and catching small fry and whatnot and um, ended up releasing them before migration. Um, but uh, it was from then on, it was just one uh, bird after another. Um, and that was about the time um, in the 19, early 1970s, um, when I got into falconry, there were no regulations. The regulations were first put in place in New Mexico in 1972. And if you can believe this, I had a friend who would go out uh, and trap kestrels. And he would sell them to the local pet shops for five bucks and they'd turn around and sell them for 750. So you could go, just walk into a pet shop, a couple of the local ones and, and buy a kestrel, which is just incomprehensible right now sure. I mean, because they're regulated as well they should be. But it just shows how wild west it was then. There were no <laughs> regulations. Wow. And, um, so um, anyway, in the early 70s, um, we started to form um, uh, a loose club of sorts. And um, it was actually a couple of years that it got very organized and we actually put out a, uh, the first issue of the New Mexico Falconry, the Journal of the New Mexico Falconry Association. And it has to be a collector's item because it was really well done, good articles. Um, it's just amazing. Unfortunately, it was the one and only <laughs> issue, which makes it more valuable. But that was what we were, we, uh, some people thought a club should be. Um, I w was much more practical, to be honest. I thought um, there were two reasons to have a group. Uh, first of all, to get the regulations where you wanted them. Um, as I mentioned earlier, regulations can, um, uh, you can be put out of business in a heartbeat because there's such a small number of falconers compared to shotgunners or any other sporting group. And so we're always cautious and organizing makes, makes it easier to get the regulations you want passed and put in place. The other thing is, in the early days, there were a lot of falconers who did their own thing, and they some of them didn't have um, a healthy respect for <laughs> rules and regulations. Maybe because falconry is so such gray area as it is, because most of the regulations are made for gun hunters, and so they try and apply those regulations to falconers, and it it doesn't. It's not the same thing. Um, falcons and hawks have their own mind. They'll go and catch whatever they want. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Um, and then there was the whole peregrine issue. When peregrine numbers were going down, uh, a lot of falconers 
believed that it was all hype, that the peregrines were doing fine. And um, so you had issues with um, people in, breaking into law, you know, unlawfulness or um, this kind of thing, um, stepping over the line. And so part of uh, forming a club was to instill peer pressure, basically. It's like, look, we're all in this together. If you do something illegal and it gets written up in the newspaper, it's going to hurt all of us. It's not just about you. It's about all of us because uh, one, what one falconer does, um, you know, makes all of us look bad. So that was the other big reason to me for forming a group. And uh, I never wanted it to be uh, any more formal than it needed to be. Uh, some clubs are really well organized and it's almost like a goal in itself is having a lot of organization and journals and all that. Um, I felt um, that it, it was just as much as we need, nothing more. And that's kind of the way it stayed. I, and it's not that I'm against getting more organized, but, you know, if somebody else wants to do that, fine, let them do it. But as long as I was part of organizing things, uh, it was like, let's keep it simple. You know, it's, it's about us and about the regulations and, and just getting together. And um, the other thing that happened in the early days is uh, you would have disputes among falconers. Uh, and uh, one falconer would turn somebody in for some such thing because they were enemies. And then another one would turn somebody else in for catching game out of season. And it's like, you, you know, people, you're, hurt, you're just hurting the sport in the state. The, the, it, it, the state is like parents. They don't want to hear their kids coming to them with their problems and disputes. It's like we need to settle this amongst ourselves and not tattle to the state because it makes us all look bad. So that was another reason is to enough of this. Let's, you know, we're a group. Um, let's put peer pressure. If somebody does something bad, uh, unacceptable, then we, as a group, we can chastise them or shame them or what, whatever, whatever it takes. But tattling to the state or the feds is not the way to go. No. Well, and, and I think you probably would be in agreement, too, that I mean, the whole system that's in place to even get into falconry with the, with the sponsorship and, I mean, all, all of that stuff is just an extra form of, of self-regulation, you know, to, to hold each other accountable and to make sure that, you know, the right people are kind of getting into the sport. I mean, it all ties in together. I mean, all the above reasons that you said are, are good reasons to, to start a club or, you know, to start some kind of group that can either, you know, self-regulate or advocate for, you know, a certain group of people's rights to government or whatever the situation may be for those tough situations in which, you know, unfortunately do pop up from time to time. But I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of history though with, uh, with the state. And, you know, I mean, I do know a handful of people here, of course, that, uh, you know, have been involved and, and, and lived in the state for a long time, but it's interesting to hear, you know, just how far back it was that 
things kind of did get officially, uh, quote unquote, officially started, right? You know, as opposed to just the uh, the stuff that was kind of happening in the background. But mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, that's that's neat though. I mean, so you started off, and and I just have to add this too. <laughs> Uh, you know, being a bass player myself, it, I would have, I would have a hard time <laughs> lending one of my custom bases for, for, a, for, the, for someone to build me a Swedish goshawk trap, but what a random thing, like just to have plans laying around for, you know, that you could just build somebody Right. that, that had to be so random. Well, well, it happened to be the brother of the gentleman I spoke of earlier that had the bird in the, on the oh, perch okay. two, two blocks away. So he had the plans from his brother. He wasn't a falconer himself, but he said, I'll build this for you if you lend me your base. So <laughs> there you go. That's awesome though. Well, I mean, it's, yes. that's another one of those funny, funny, uh, random, like anecdotal, you know, kind of thing. It's, that's, right. that's hilarious. Right. But, uh, yeah. I should mention the first big bird that, that we had, um, uh, it was a great horned owl that had been hit by a car and, um, a local guy, um, uh, you, uh, he was one of these, I guess you call him a jock or something. He, he was one of these, um, sporty football player type people who wouldn't give you the time of day otherwise but he knew that we liked birds and stuff so he asked us um, about this owl because he had picked it up after it had been hit by a car we went over there to look at it and it had been he had been trying to feed it watermelon rind Uh, which Uh. is not I don't know where he reached. I guess it was the right color or something. <laughs> but anyway, we talked him out of it. And you um, said, you really, you, these things have to eat meat and they need a lot of care and blah, blah, blah. And so he turned it over to us. So we had this great horned owl for, we had it for four or five months, quite a long time. And it recovered and all. But the thing that I learned about great horned owls, at least adult ones, uh, I would go out to train it every day and it would learn a new, you know, and it'd come flying across the yard and, and whatnot. But I would go out the next day and it's like it didn't remember any of it. It would <laughs> click and hiss at you and it's like, didn't you learn anything yesterday? I'm your friend. I'm Mr. Food. And so you had to go through all the steps. And sure, every day it was a little quicker, but it's like you had to retrain it every day. A frustrating bird, but I, I learned a lot on it. Yeah, it's like the movie Fifty First Dates or something. It's like something. <laughs> just forget forget everything the next day. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've tried flying a couple of uh, passage coops that were like that, too. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, some birds are just that way. But I've heard that from a... a Several people that have tried flying great horns that they're that they're like that in general. But, right. Yeah. Well, I have a bias. They, the wise old owl isn't so wise as yeah. far as I'm concerned. <laughs> a lot of people feel that way. But, you know, it sounds like it's a uh, it's a reputation that's been well earned in that regard. But you know, some people have, have done well with. They it. have done, and uh, some of the uh, imprints and uh, passage great horns have done. They've done just fine with them. So. Um, it's, it's, maybe I'm speaking from ignorance. I'm sure somebody else could, could maybe talk better of them. Well, I mean, it, I think that's, you can probably say that species to species though. Right. Because I mean, like it's, it's the whole, um, you know, like 
one man's trash is another man's treasure right. kind of thing. Some people love certain birds and they're just wired to fly certain birds. It's, you know, it's just, that's just their personality. Right. And so, I mean, maybe, maybe some people are just either they just got really lucky or they're, they're just overly patient yes. because they just love that breed or what, or, or not breed, but species, you know, or whatever the case may be. Right. Uh, who knows? Your guess is as good as mine. Right. But, uh, but, but, but yeah. I have great respect for them. Don't get me wrong. Um, I remember we were camping out at a falconry meet and as people do, they'll get their birds set up for the night. And I had one bird out and was taking the hood off and getting it set for the evening. And it was dark, except for the campfire. And I was a ways away from the fire. And I, um, the bird started screaming a little bit. And uh, I felt this breeze. I didn't hear anything, but I felt this breeze above my head. And I look up, and there's a great horned owl hovering right above me, ready to take that bird right off my glove. Yeah. And it was responding, I'm sure, to the sound of it screaming and uh, as a prey item. Uh, it scared the heck out of me. And <laughs> so I'm always careful when I'm out because the, those great horns will, you know, any kind of sound draws them in. Well, and they're, they're such silent flyers too. I right. mean, you can't hear them at all. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I have gotten the chance to see a, a couple being hunted and uh yeah i was i was just surprised at how little noise they made whenever they flew right you, you wouldn't think that but i mean they're really fast too i mean you just you it's deadly combination That's yes <laughs> absolutely good, good good for them not not so good for whatever it is they're going after right and many falconers losing their birds to great horns can attest to it too uh-huh yeah i've 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 also witnessed that i mean mm. i've I witnessed a, a red tail and a and a great horn get into it, and it is not pretty mm. at all. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's 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 not pretty. My Harris hawks regularly chase them when I get them up by accident, and knock on wood, it, it it's almost like an instinctual thing to chase an owl, but they don't close the deal, which is fine with me. Mm -hmm. um, I'll run for all I'm worth to try and break something up but it never turns into grabbing they just chase the great horned owl for a while and then the owl stops and turns and hackles at them and it's a standoff and that's fine that's why i like it but um, it would be terrible to see your bird tangle with one i don't know how it would end but it would be badly for somebody uh, yeah it it doesn't end well for somebody that's for sure <laughs> right. including the uh including the falcon <laughs> the falconer <laughs> right. you know if they have to try and break that up it it, it turns messy pretty pretty right. quick unfortunately having to get in between yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's not fun not no. fun but uh well, I mean, so which particular species did you start flying that kind of, I mean, was it a, a particular species that you started flying that kind of got you thinking, oh, I, I might want to start a propagation project or, you know, kind of made you decide, you know, I'd really like to just go ahead and, and see if I could start breeding these so I could have the pick of the litter, so to speak, or, I mean, how did you end up uh, deciding that you wanted to, to start breeding raptors? Well, with my biology background, I was always interested in all aspects of raptors. And uh, at the time, I was flying Harris's hawks, uh, several of them together. And during the summer months, so often, uh, it's just really boring for the birds, for the falconer. It seems like so much of what you're doing is just throwing them food and that's it. And... I thought 
if I can breed these things, uh, it would be good for them, and it'd be a great challenge. Not, uh, it's not that I wanted or needed more Harris hawks per se, or even was thinking about money. Um, it was really more about just the challenge of it and the joy of it and uh, just experiencing every aspect. I certainly experienced the hunting aspect, but the reproductive aspect of raptors is a whole other thing. And um, I'll share a story that um, that makes a point. Um, a friend of mine, Greg Pinkston, uh, had a Harris's hawk that was a great hunter. It was taken out of the wild, and it was a great, great hunter. But it would self-pluck and, and self-mutilate its feathers. And um, a after being flown successfully a couple of seasons, it came out of nowhere. It started really destroying its feathers. And he, he was at the end of his rope. He had tried nutrition, all different kinds of things. And talking to me one time, I told him, maybe she's reproductive age now. Maybe she needs to, to breed. She has this drive, and it's frustrating her. And there's nothing she can do about it. I said, if you like, we can try. I had a spare tiersel Harris hawk. I said, we can throw them together. And she, her feathers were so damaged that I had to put stumps. She couldn't fly up to a perch. I had to put stumps so she could stair step up to the, to the perch. <laughs> wow. And so I put a nest box up in there, put them together. They got along good, no issues with aggression or anything. And within two weeks, she had laid a first egg. And um, long story short, she never mutilated another feather. So our, uh, it's almost like our guess was right, that she was a frustrated bird and that the, she needed to breed. Um, it, was, it was her primal directive, your prime directive, telling her to go out there and make babies. And, and she's been great ever since. She goes out and flies hard every season. And we take her and put her with her tearsel in, uh, in the summer, and it's like full circle. Everything works out. So the point I'm trying to make is breeding will, seems to me it makes a better bird. They're self-actualized or whatever you want to call it. They, they um, hunt, and then they breed and raise babies, and it's just everything that they're meant to do. So, so that alone is a good enough reason. It, it's nice. I'll, I won't, I won't lie. It's nice to make a little bit of money to support your falconry hobby and buy equipment and everything like that. Um, but uh, I'm the first to tell you. Um, there's a saying in the falconry community: the uh, falconers that breed birds get all the glory but the people that make the money are the people breeding the quail <laughs> to feed them <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot of truth to that <laughs> too. Yeah, I, I can imagine because i mean pretty much i mean almost every person that that breeds raptors that i know you know be also the first to say um yeah there's just not a whole lot of money to be made in, in this you're not going to get rich you know necessarily uh breeding breeding raptors it's not some kind of thing that you can just you know quit your job and you know you know, start <laughs> right. just start you know hammering out all these different species and you're just going to instantly become a millionaire or something right but, i had a friend years ago who um had an, a merlin that started laying eggs for him and he was all excited and he says 
well, I've got a little bit of money uh, for my son's college fund. And he said, maybe I could borrow that and, and buy a Tearsol and uh, then we could repay it back. And I said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Don't be taking your son's college money. This is such an unsure, uh, unpredictable thing. Um, I would only put money into it that you can afford to lose. And so I stopped him right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you should only take from your kids uh you know college fund if you want to buy other cool stuff you know like bass guitars or you know whatever (laughs) (laughs) but yeah having having expectations of of getting it back is is a whole other thing absolutely (laughs) no that's cool though well i mean what so you started breeding the harris hawks when did you start uh you know trying to breed uh, other falcons and i mean was did did it kind of come in in succession, or did you just stick with Harris's for a while? Or? Um, I, I stuck with Harris's for a while, um, just because that's what I had. I didn't um, have a, a lot of falcons uh, for a while. Um, but I, I remember telling my wife, um, it was sort of like uh, uh, the nativity or something. People would come around to see the, the baby Harris's like... <laughs> You know, like it was the Christ child or something come to see the, the, the Harris Hawks. Matt's got Harris and they come look at him. And it was it was hilarious, you That's know, funny. but the, I guess it was like the first one. Uh, I, I, I wasn't exactly the first. There was a, a doctor up in Santa Fe that had bred some um, prairie falcons. And then there was um, a guy, Jeff Turner in Silver City, who had. I had a pair of birds that he had tried to breed unsuccessfully, but he was sure trying. So there were there were people who were doing it themselves. Um, of course, Tom Smiley um, ha- sent peregrines up to the peregrine fund for, uh, where they were bred, um, but only until recently has Tom started breeding himself directly. Uh, so it, it was it, it was what I had. Um, I did not think much of falcons for a while when I uh, they they make fun of Harris Hawk people saying they're dirt hawkers (laughs) and they fly clones and all that kind of stuff Uh, but the falconry that was going on that I saw was uh, pigeons you know they would they would go out and um, you know let a bird go soaring and throw a pigeon and they get a beautiful stoop but it was like um, this isn't game hawking. I, I mean, it's a pretty thing to watch, but it, it's it, to me it wasn't game hawking. And having flown Harris hawks, which you go out and you get flight after flight after flight, and you get out there and beat the brush, and that's hunting. You know, going out and setting up a table and lawn chairs and watching a bird go soaring and then throw out a pigeon. To me, it's cool, and I wouldn't put someone down for it, but it, it to me, it's not hunting. And I wanted to hunt, and I said, I don't want a falcon if I can't hunt it. Well, there was a guy named Scott Baker that had an imprint female peels. And uh, the thing about imprints is you can fly them in such high condition, and she was just solid muscle. And I remember there were two ponds, uh, very close to each other, and we would flush the ducks, and the falcon would stoop, and they'd get to the next pond, she'd go back up, and it was back and forth and back and forth, and we hunted that bird for a full hour, and that bird was working the whole time, and I said, I could get into this, 
this is some good stuff. And so it made a real impression. And that's when I started getting into falcons. And so I started out with passage prairie falcons. Um, and uh, ducks were the thing that was around. And it, what amazed me was every bird was so different. I was training them the same. I, I think I flew eight passage prairie falcons. Every bird was different. I would um, train them the same way, but some would scream, some wouldn't. Some would love ducks, some hated ducks. You just don't know what you're going to get. With, and that's kind of an exciting thing with passage birds, but it's also frustrating. If you want to do one particular thing, um, if you want to hunt ducks and they don't know what a duck is, um, it's an uphill battle because they tend to get set in their ways after a while. So then um, I started to say, if I raise my own, um, like imprint one or at least chamber raise, get one as a chamber bird, everything that bird is is what I put into it. And that way I'll know it's going to take ducks or I know what it'll do because I'm there to influence it. And so th that, that's when I got into falcons. And when I, I've always bred what I have. And so that's when I started breeding falcons. And um, I wish there was um, uh, a good reason for everything I do in my breeding project. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's what birds are laying eggs at the time that uh, a semen is available. So you end up making you know, all kinds of hybrids. You never know what you're going to make. And, and it's all very interesting. And, and none of them are bad birds. Some I would prefer, you know, over others. But um, I, I made a lot of strange birds. I, 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 sh I should mention one uh, cross I made that uh, um, I don't know if it's been made since, but we made um, Harris Cooper's crosses. And uh, wow. now, you know, it, it's, it's easy enough to make interspecies or, or no, let's see, intergenus crosses, but um, the, the, or inter, let's, yeah, the, the, the Cooper's is a Cipeter, Harris is Parabudio. And so um, it, it was intergenus, not interspecies. So um, it was, uh, and I don't know if those young were fertile, but uh, people had a lot of fun with them, and I would like to see somebody make them again someday. It would be interesting. Wow. Well, I mean, I've, I've heard similar things being done with uh, Harris's and Goss's. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that's something that kind of interests me as well. It's, of course, blasphemy to, to even speak of, of such a thing right. to, uh, you know, people who are just fanatical uh, Goshawk fans. Right. But, you know, I, I would just love to, to see how one would do personally right. because I predominantly also hunt with <laughs> fanatical right. goshawk fans so right yeah it's it's uh i don't know call it call it a personal spite thing but i mean theoretically though all kidding aside if you did get the best of of both worlds so to speak with that crossing that would make a really good bird I'm, absolutely I'm, I'm sure that there would be some degree of that with uh I've, I've never heard of a, of a Harris Coop cross, so that's interesting. Yep, and I, I made about eight, and another guy who had the bird before me made four before that. 
So uh, I guess there was about a you know ten twelve made. So um, wow, it was interesting stuff. <laughs> I have heard of um, ha uh, Harris Golden Eagle crosses. I have heard and of that too. So um, there's another interesting one, but. Uh, again, it, they would have to be field tested to see what exactly are you getting for this cross? Is it worth it or not? Sure. And, and that's certainly the case with a lot of these crosses. Um, if you can make it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good way to go, but you have to try it and see. Mm. Uh, I, I've been making um, uh, like Jura Oplomatos and Peregrine Oplomatos. And of course that gives them the bigger size and all. And um, uh, nobody has flown them hard in falconry uh, that has told me how it turns out, but the uh, abatement people love them because the Oplomato side is very birdy and they'll chase any bird, but because of their bigger size, they don't get eaten by red tails so easily. And so they get up and, and also they don't catch blackbirds and starlings as easily as an oplomato would which is really what an abatement person wants they want to get up there chase away all the birds from the crops and then come back to the falconer they don't want to be making in every flight you know and have to deal with that Definitely. so so it, it's funny how these hybrids work out and their applications their ultimate application yeah there's there's a lot of interesting crosses that I've heard of you know I once again a lot of them that I see come from overseas you know in the UK or, or um, you know different countries but I never really hear how they perform either right I mean it definitely piques the curiosity but yeah I mean I've I, um, I I've heard of a few really good crossings you know or hybrids uh, doing well you know, from, from guys that, I mean, the com the common denominator usually is that, you know, a person, no matter what, obviously has to, has to be really just hunting the heck out of them, you know, and, and because, I mean, nobody's going to make a good bird just kind of only partially, you know, honey <laughs> or not, not hunting very often. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm like you, I would be interested to see just how, um, just how some of these different crosses would, would theoretically turn out. Right. Cause, Cause like you said, a lot of times you don't hear about it. Exactly. And the other thing is when a breeder makes a cross that they think will work, they seem to be careful about putting it in the right hands. Because if you put it in the hands of somebody who has a tough work schedule and can't fly it much, it's probably not going to see its full potential. Mm -hmm. And so they try and choose people, at least for the first few they make, that will actually get out and fly it. And if they are good, They'll put the word out. Yeah, it makes sense. And even, even just, I know there's a lot of breeders that, that I know that, that have the, the mentality of just wanting to do that anyway, no matter what. You know, there's a lot of breeders that over time, I, I know they start to get a little bit more picky about, you know, who they, who they sell to. And are, are you going to for sure have, have time to do a little bit more of a screening because, right. you know, I mean, and, and I, I mean, I can't blame anyone that wants to put that, that amount of, because it's a lot of work, right? I mean, a breeding project is a lot of, a lot of work. 
And I admire anybody that's willing, <laughs> that's willing to have the patience to take one on. I, right. you know, but. Well, there's an emotional attachment to these youngsters. You, you watch them grow up from downies, probably hatching in your hand before you put it back with mom to raise. And you get attached to them, and they, they're so beautiful. They're just, some of them are just so stunning to look at. And they have these wonderful behaviors, and you watch them develop. And so when you do ship them to their new home, to the falconer or whoever, you want to see them do well, you know? It's like sending your kids off to college or something, you know? And, and sometimes it doesn't work out and you hear bad things that happen to the bird, like maybe it was neglected or, you know, not flown enough or this or that. And, you know, it's, it hurts a little bit. Um, but you know, I guess that's part of it too. Yeah, I mean it's it's just like anything else. Once that, I mean it's no different than transferring a bird that you might or might not like or whatever the case may be. As soon as that bird's out of your possession, I mean it is what it is. Right. I mean, you know, there's only so much you can do, and you have to kind of force yourself to to detach. You know, after because I mean it's what what are you going to do what are you going to be able to do about it realistically not a thing not a thing exactly so, <laughs> so well i mean no that's 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 great though i mean I, I i think that's that's really neat that you're able to to have continued success doing that mm -hmm. and you know you've it sounds like you made some some interesting some interesting <laughs> combos but uh i guess this would be a good time to go ahead and just share um what what your favorite or one of the more prominent uh, either hunting stories or uh, memories of your favorite bird, um, whatever the case may be, uh, one of the more prominent things that that still remains in your head, you know, with your with your falconry career thus far. I mean, it sounds like you've been doing it for a long time, <laughs> but I mean, what what's what's one of the the best memories that you have? Well, there's so many. Uh, I could rattle off ten different stories, but um, some. Well, I'll take an imprint angle. I tend to like flying imprints. Part of that's the biologist in me. I, I love seeing those behaviors. Um, you know, with an imprint, what you see is what you get. What they're feeling, they're gonna express it, no holding back. And that's why a lot of people don't like them because of their manners and, and noisiness and, and whatnot. Uh, but in my uh, opinion, you fly an imprint hard and you, after a while, you can't tell the difference between a good, hard-flying, self-sufficient imprint and a passage or a chamber-raised bird. Um, their, their manners can be just as good, and they're still totally acclimated to everything you do. So one story that I like, I had a, um, a Jur Barbary Tiersel that was really great on ducks, uh, but he was so stocky and wide. He, I, I just loved look, just looking at him. gave me great joy because he was so wide and in the shoulders. And um, he would go up and, and um, really fly well. And I had flown him for a number of years, and uh, he was a semen donor. And so he was basically, in his mind, I was his mate. And so... Um, uh, one day I was out and spotted some ducks on a drain, put him up, and he went right up like he does. And um, uh, while I was moving in to flush the ducks, I hadn't seen a red tail in a tree right where the ducks were. And that red tail took off out of the middle of the tree and let out that red tail 
ticked off scream. And uh, this, the uh, Tiersel up above took that as a threat to me, I think. And he went into a full fold and stooped on that red tail. And the red tail never saw him coming. And he whacked it in the back of the head. <laughs> and it went down like a leaf. And I, I thought, oh, my God, I've killed a red tail. And, uh, and he, after the stoop, he just kind of looked over his shoulder and went back up. It was all about getting the red tail out of the equation. It wasn't about killing it or eating it. It was just neutralizing neutralizing yeah. it exactly so he went back up flushed the ducks got them fed up put them in the car and i went over to see how the red you know see this dead red tail <laughs> i walk over there and it stands up kind of shakes it off <laughs> and flies away so it was like okay i was happy but it it just showed me a behavior this defensive behavior um, in these birds um, i had another um bird uh, it was a, a barbary anatom female and if, if i told this story uh, to a group of falconers around the campfire they would all razz me and say i was making it up but as fate would have it it was at a falconry meet and there was at least 12 people there and so um, the way it works at falconry meets um, you kind of have a, a, a unofficial drawing, and so this one flies first, this one second, and so on, till everybody gets flown. Well, because of birds wandering off and delays and whatnot, um, uh, my bird, who usually flies at eight o'clock in the morning, it was 1.30 in the afternoon, and she was so ready to fly. Uh, more than ready. She, she was used to fly around 710 grams. She was down to um, 690. So she was way down and it's like this bird's got to fly. So we found some ducks, put her up with one o'clock in the afternoon. It was, it was cold out. It was full winter, but there were still some thermals and stuff. So she was just going up fast. It's like, okay, she is so into this. It's going to be great. So we were moving up on the ducks for the flush. Three sandhill cranes <laughs> came flying right underneath her. And I've always felt that something flying under a falcon is kind of dissing them. It's no respect. I'm not, it's like, I, you're nothing. I'm not afraid of you. And she had other ideas. And, and my back was turned to her as I was moving towards the duck. And somebody, I heard somebody say, she's stooping. And so I turn and look, and here she is, full fold. And she smacks a sandhill crane in the head. And it's, it doesn't go down, but it stuns it. And it's like wobbly. She pitches up, hits it again, <laughs> right in the head. And then th this was out a good distance by then. And she finally hits it a third time. And I remember seeing it go down into this field way out there, a couple hundred yards. And a big puff of dust came up because that thing hit so hard. And then we, I see her go down. And someone had her in binoculars. And they say, she bound to it. She's on it. And so the guy that saw exactly where it went down jumped in the car with me. We got as close as we could in the car. It seemed like forever. It was just a couple of minutes. And we go running up. And I could just picture my bird being torn to shreds by this bird that outweighed it by so much. Mm -hmm. And um, we come running up. 
and this sand, sandhill crane stands up on real wobbly legs, falcon hanging off her neck, it has stripped all the meat oh, off wow. of its neck. And it's like, holy moly. And it's like, there's no releasing this. She's mutilated it, uh-huh. you know, torn it up. So I had to kill it. Um, and probably um, it was a bad judgment, but it's like, everybody's going to want to see this. <laughs> so, so I brought it back and everybody was like, whoa, that's awesome. And just, you know, just incredible. And people were taking pictures, which could have landed me in jail. It was, it was Sandhill crane season, but I didn't have a permit. Uh-huh. And I noticed a couple of people who, um, you know, didn't want to be in legal hot water took off. But we finally kicked it around and said, okay, we're going to have to leave it for the coyotes. Sure. But we got a weight on it, and it was 12 and a half pounds. Wow. Um, and my 680-some gram uh, falcon took it down. Jeez. So that, that was pretty, pretty amazing yeah. story there. No, that's awesome. No, it's, uh, everybody seems to... Uh, have one of those eventually one of those types of stories but Mm -hmm. yeah no i mean that's awesome no i mean thank you for sharing those Mm -hmm. and i think this is probably about a good time that uh we're actually almost at an hour so i know time flies right right uh well i mean like i said thank you for agreeing to do this and um you know i'm sure that everybody that listens will enjoy some of those stories and insights and like i said i appreciate it is there anything else that um i mean do you want to uh let anybody know how they can get a hold of you if they're interested in a bird or something or uh, well i if i have birds to spare uh, i i make a list and people will um get on the list first come first serve type of thing but if i have a lot of birds i'll advertise on raptors nest cool raptorsnest.com so uh, you can watch for me there um, I'd probably just close by saying, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about how um, the skills that we have as falconers, <laughs> as long as we've been in it, you think we should be better at it. Um, but um, Harry McElroy, um, that a lot of people know, the author and falconer, um, said one time, one lifetime is not long enough to, to master the sport. And that is so true. Um, having been at it long enough, um, I, I can attest to that. And all you can do is give it your best, but you're still going to have those rookie days where everything goes wrong. And, and that's part of, the, part of the game. And don't get discouraged. Um, I always look at training falcons as when you bring them out of the molt or if you're starting a new bird, it's like a blunt stick. And you take out a knife and you're whittling. And every day that you go out, it's like whittling on the end. And pretty soon you get this sharp, sharp point. And that's, that's where you want your bird to be. That's, that's what falconry is. Sure. Yeah, and some birds uh, whittle, whittle faster than others, so to speak. <laughs> but, you know, hey, some make us look great, like we said earlier. Some make us look great and some make us look, uh, well, not. So, you know, you'll have those. But... Again, I think that's the perfect way to end it. And once again, thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank and, you. Thank you for all that you're doing for us. Well, I, like I said, you know, it's, it's all good. I'm, I'm glad that we can continue to you know, share stories and uh, experiences. And you know, hopefully the, the wider world will benefit from it somehow. So anyway, right. um, it's been nice getting to know you a little bit. And thank you again. You bet. All right.